I don't know about you, but this psalm series has been just, it's been so powerful to hear the words of the Lord sung, you know? And uh, this morning I, I get the I get the opportunity to open up God's word with you to Psalm 23. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous about this. Okay, I'm, I'm more than a little bit nervous. Uh, I'm feeling it this morning, right? Psalm 23 has a, a, a kind of intensity to it. Because, because of that phrase, you know that phrase, we, I feel like everyone's heard it before. It's, it's, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I gotta let you know, I feel like I'm walking through that valley right now. I feel like uh, in our church right now, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of our senior pastor, Pastor Seth, he's not here. And he's struggling with his back. And many of you know that if you're new with us this morning, I'm, I'm Pastor Zach, I, I get to work with our, our young adults and our, and our youth. And I get to preach today, but the reason why I'm here is because people are some, feeling some valleys right now. And uh, I think it'd be good and right for us as we enter into to God's word this morning that we, we can lift up prayer for our senior pastor and, and prayer for anyone who's here who's experiencing a kind of valley. Because what we're gonna learn today is that there's a kind of confidence that God offers in those places that just, it, it transcends our understanding, doesn't it? God's peace and his joy and his goodness. And so I want you to bow your heads with me. Let's, let's lift up prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm grateful that we can come to you in prayer, that we can pray in Jesus' name and with the power of your Holy Spirit. I'm grateful, Lord, that the words of this psalm are so vivid and so powerful, and the truths that they, that they bring to us gives us a, a kind of peace that, as your word says, it, it, it just passes understanding. And so this morning, as, as we come to you, Lord, there's many in this room right now who are feeling as if they're walking through a kind of valley and they can't see over the, over the mountain. They can't see what's up ahead that you'd remind them that there's a good shepherd that leads. And as we come to you in prayer, Lord, we want to lift up specifically our senior pastor, Pastor Seth. We want to lift him to you because we care so deeply about him. And Lord, it's part of our job as the church to pray for our leader. And so we lift up praise and we ask, Lord, that you bring healing, that you bring peace, that you bring rest. We ask, Lord, that by your power, that he would feel the joy and the, and, and the peace and the righteousness of the Lord as, you, as he walks through a valley himself. And so we, we lift this to you and we, and we trust you and we love you, Lord. Lead us in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I, uh, I want you to know that this, this psalm is, is a kind of a special one. Now, we, we teach every week, and, and it's important for us to all understand that God's word is, is one. It's one word that God gives to us. There's not a part of scripture that we should elevate over another part, right? So even, even a part like this one, you know, Psalm 23, many people have heard this psalm before. And I think many of us can be in the church, could take this one for granted. If you've heard it so many times, you can miss out on the truths that are in here. I don't want us to do that today. I want to dig deep on this one. I don't want us to, to be in the shallow end on this. I want us to plumb the depths of what's being said here. And I want to look at some of the symbolism that's here and how it opens up before us because God's word is one. But there are times, you know, and, and verses in scripture that uh, the, the imagery and the powerful truth and all of the things that begin to stack up and even, it even cuts through into the secular world. Even outside of the church, when people hear the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me to still waters. You know, the places where that, that psalm gets read the most is at the places when people are walking through the darkest and most difficult times of their life. They're, it's read at funerals. It's read at bedsides in the hospital. And there's a reason why, because even people who don't really know who Jesus is recognize that in a time of turmoil, in a time of suffering, in a time of pain, they're not in control. And when I talk to you today about this, I need you to know that I'm talking to you as a person who also needs to read this word and get it in me. Because this week, my my wife and I have been switching off and on in the hospital with our daughter. Uh, my middle daughter has cystic fibrosis and man, we have just felt the strain. She's been in there for a week. She hopefully gets out tomorrow. I, I will tell you that she is now very stir crazy. They had to yell at her from jumping to, from the windowsill to the bed. So she's doing well. But man, as a parent, man, if any parents that are in here that have experienced what it's like to just be in the hospital with your kid, there's nothing worse. And dads, dads, I got to tell you, there's nothing. There's so many times that I have prayed, why not me? Why can't it be me? Let me take it. We walk through the valley. And I want you to know I'm feeling it today. I'm tired. And I know a lot of you are here and you're feeling the same thing. And I want this psalm to speak to you. It's going to speak to me. Because the Lord is the one who wrote these words. And he's a good shepherd, isn't he? Let's stand to our feet and read this together. I might add a little bit of the King James in here because I memorized it in the King James. You know, the these and the thous. Maybe you have too. But Psalm 23 says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures and he leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Because even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. Amen. You can sit down. You can be seated. So in this psalm, what we have is King David who writes these words and he's writing uh, and painting a picture for us. As I said, the imagery here is really important for us to understand. Um, Pastor Seth often talks about how the Bible, there's a kind of symbol world of the Bible. There's symbols and there's images and there's things when, when the Bible talks about something like shepherds, for example, or sheep, it is good and right for us to look at the whole Bible and say, where have we seen shepherds before? Where have we seen sheep before? What can we learn from the Bible uh, about what King David might be talking about? When we see symbols, and we're going to look at them, like the table, right? The table that's laid out before him. Symbols like the anointing of oil and the cup that overflows. All of those things should bring our minds to a place where we say, I wonder where this is connected to. I wonder what comes up in the Bible about these things. And so we're going to start. The first part is all about shepherds and sheep. And I want to tell you, you want to be a sheep in the flock of God. You want to be that. Okay. And if you're here and you're like, I don't know if I want to be that. No, no, you do. You do. 
Uh, a lot of times I've heard pastors, they would, they take this idea of the sheep. And sometimes I do this with little ones when I'm teaching the littles. I talk about how sheep are disgusting. They're really, they're kind of gross. And some people will say like, the reason why God calls you a sheep is because you're a mess. And uh, while that might be true, some of you are like, you don't know me. I'm kind of a mess right now. Uh, that's not what, that's not what's being talked about right here. Okay. You, you, you should know he's not, uh, he's not calling us sheep and God, a shepherd, the Lord, the shepherd, because he wants you to feel like you're just a dirty, gross, kind of stupid sheep. That's, that's not what's going on here. And the reason why I know that is because when you look at the whole Bible and, and you, and you look at the way that God speaks about sheep and you look at the significance of sheep, what you'll find in the old Testament is that, um, very connected with the sacrificial system. You know, they used to, uh, on the day of atonement, they would bring a, a spotless lamb, the symbol there being purity and holiness. And, and it makes sense that in the new Testament, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking to him, he looks at him and he says that famous line, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If Jesus is identified with a lamb, then you should not be ashamed about being a sheep. <laughs> I'm a sheep. You should want to be a sheep in the flock of God. What, what David is talking about here is he's saying that there really, there's a difference between being in the flock and being the shepherd. And I don't know if you need to hear this today. You would not make a good shepherd. You, you make a great sheep. You're not a shepherd. I can say that a different way. You make a terrible God. I'm a terrible God, but he is such a good God. And so as people in the flock of God, when we start to read these words, the Lord is my shepherd, we recognize we're in God's flock and he's the one who's in control and he's the one who's leading us. And, and this is important because the, enti- the psalm is about some of the darkest and most difficult places of our life. Isn't it good that you're not in the driver's seat? You ever see that? I hate that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. You ever see that? If you haven't, it's real dumb. If you have it on your car right now, you should definitely take it off as soon as you get to the parking lot. And then I also apologize for making fun of you in front of everyone. Um, <laughs> uh, Jesus shouldn't be the co-pilot. You shouldn't be holding the, you got the wheel? No, let him drive, let him fly the plane. You don't know what you're doing. We're a sheep in the flock of God. That's, that should bring you a kind of comfort. And here's why I think it brings comfort when we look at this psalm. David was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. So he knew the sheep. He knew, one, what the sheep wanted and needed. And he knew, two, how to lead the sheep where they needed to go. And the fact that he then takes this and he says, God's a, God's a shepherd over his flock, it, it tells us very clearly that the, the good shepherd... And by the way, that, that, the, the symbolism that we see in, in being a shepherd, you know, shepherds are very important throughout scripture. David himself is a shepherd boy who becomes a king. The shepherds are the ones that first hear that Jesus was born, right? You remember that, the birth announcement from the angels? And in John 10, 10, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for his sheep. We hear phrases like, my sheep hear my voice, they know me. And, and Jesus is that shepherd who, who leads, Right? He knows where he's going and he's going to get you there. And so the Psalm opens and says, the Lord is my shepherd and I'm not going to want for anything. He knows exactly what I need. And what do, what do sheep need? Well, we're told here some things that sheep need. They, they need a certain kind of pasture, right? He doesn't say he leadeth me to the desert. He leadeth me to brown grass that's dead and dying. And I don't have anything to eat. I can't rest in this place. It doesn't say that. It says he leads me to a specific kind of pasture. It's a green pasture. And there's rest there for us to lie down, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. 
And it doesn't say, I'm going to lead my sheep to the roaring waters and the rapids, and they're going to have to figure out how to get a drink. It doesn't say, I'm going to lead you to the ocean. And best of luck trying to get any kind of thirst quenched from the salty waters that you find there. He says, no, no, no. I know exactly what sheep need. Sheep need to be led to still water. And, and the result of this, when the Lord is the shepherd and we are the sheep, the result is that he's going to give us what we need for our souls. And, and how many of you are here today? I mean, I, there's, there is a kind of weight that can sometimes hit us in the soul level. When you're, when you're worried and you're stressed about, what does God really forgive me? Is he really in charge of my life? Is he really working around me? Is he really in control of what I'm seeing? Because the things that I'm looking at, they're, they're a mess. But I said, he, he knows what you need. He's going to restore your soul. That's what it says. He restoreth my soul. But the thing that's amazing is it says, I, I can tell you with confidence that God will get you where he wants you to go. And I know that it's true because he says right here that he will lead you in paths of righteousness, not for your sake. Right? Too, too many of us believe that, that it's for our sake that God does these things, that God goes, I'm going to give you something nice, and it's for you that I'm doing this. He says, no, it's for my name's sake. And I got to tell you, it's so much better that Jesus would do it for his name and not for yours and not for mine. Because when anything happens in the Bible in the name of the Lord, does it ever fail? No, it does not. It never fails. And so when, when things happen in Jesus' name, we could say yes and amen. God says all, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And that means that God, the one who's leading us in paths of righteousness, not only does he know what we need, he knows exactly where he's going. He's the good shepherd. Isn't that amazing? And it doesn't matter the surroundings because in the valley of the shadow of death, in the place where everything seems to be a mess, there's still comfort and there's not fear because of his presence. And it talks about a rod and a staff, and sometimes that could be kind of confusing. But the rod and the staff were ultimately used to, to redirect the sheep. So if the sheep are sort of walking down the path, you can imagine that we're kind of moving in this direction. And some of you are here today, and you've been struggling with a cycle of sin. The same thing that keeps, it keeps bubbling up and happen again and again and again. And you keep going to the Lord. And after a while, the shame and the guilt of that is still on you. And you start to feel like maybe, maybe I'm not part of the flock. But, but the, the reason why there's comfort in the place of, of the, the valley of the shadow of death is because the, the rod and the staff, they redirect. You, you go off the path a little bit and he says, no, that's not the direction that we're going. We're going to come over here. The path of righteousness is here in front of us and he leads us back to it. The rod and the staff are used to count the sheep too. One, I got two, I got three. Listen, and remember in the New Testament, if, you, if you've not really read much of the New Testament, Jesus talks about numbers of sheep and, and there's this beautiful passage where he says, he says, I will leave the 99 and I'm gonna go find the one. And, and for those of us who are part of like the 99, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the sheepfold. Why are you leaving the 99 for that one? But if you've ever experienced what it's like to, to feel so far away from God, so far that you're like, I can't go to church because this place will catch on fire. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before. And yet Jesus shows up and he picks you up. He seeks after you, the lost sheep, and brings you back to the sheepfold. You know what that feels like. We all know what that feels like. Jesus says when he, when he is arrested, 
And he, and he lets the, he says, you got to let the apostles go. He says in the high priestly prayer, he didn't lose a single one of the people that God gave to him because a 99 is not good enough for Jesus. For me, I go, that's an A plus. I'll take it. Last, the lost sheep, whatever. Good luck to you. I got 99. That's pretty good. That's not the way that Jesus works. That's not the good shepherd. The good shepherd says hundred percent is what I do. It's 100% that I'm going to bring my flock to where they need to go. Take confidence and rest that he knows exactly the number and that he knows exactly where he's going and that he can lead you there. It's a path of righteousness and he'll do it for his name's sake. Not for mine, not for yours, for his own glory. And man, I'd much rather have that. How about you? Amen. And so we leave, we, we sort of leave behind the image of the shepherd and the sheep at this point, And we find ourselves at a table. David says that there is a table prepared before him. Um, and, and it's important to know that we do leave the imagery of the sheep and the shepherd because sheep don't sit at a table. People do. And so now we're, we're seated at this table. And uh, I think this is very significant. Okay. So if you can imagine, you know, I... One of my favorite things to do, I would do this pretty much at any time of the day. If someone came up to me and were like, hey, hey, what's your favorite thing? Let's go do it. It's going out to eat. I love to go out to eat. I mean, anybody else in here? I mean, you take me to a restaurant. It doesn't matter if it's like real fancy. I could get into a fancy restaurant, put my tie on, let's go. Or it could be a dive, a dive where that has like some great wings. I'm fine with that too. Because I love to sit down with people to share a meal and just to talk. And, you know, honestly, sometimes I don't even care about what the topic is. I just enjoy sharing uh, a meal with someone, breaking bread with someone. There's a spiritual element to a feast, to a table. When you invite someone into your home, a guest comes to your home, and you want to be hospitable to them, you want to honor them, you, you prepare a table, don't you? you? You get out the best china, right? We have these special plates in our house that the kids have not completely broken yet. You know, they're set aside usually just for Thanksgiving. If you're real important and you come over or we love you a lot, you'll notice there's different plates and you go, oh, these are special plates. Yes, they are special plates on the table, the right silverware in the cups. We choose the right drinks. We ask questions about, okay, is there anything that you really like to eat? Do you have any allergies or the things that we need to know? Because what we want to do is we want to show hospitality when we set a table and hospitality is one of those things. It's like little details that just kind of build on each other. And every, every one of them becomes more and more of a way to show value to somebody else. I love setting a table for guests in my home. My wife loves setting a table for guests in our home. We love entertaining because there is an element to it that brings this spiritual aspect of eating and breaking bread. And, and now what the scripture is telling us is that God sets a table in the same way. Now, does it say that David contributed to this table? Do you contribute to the table that's right here? Did, or did God set it himself? If, if a guest comes into your home, are you going to have them contribute to setting up and, and doing uh, the, the food or the dessert? If you are, well, maybe you might be doing it wrong. You're like, well, sometimes they bring the dessert. But, but imagine God sets up this table and David said, actually, I like, I like the table that you have, but uh, I've, I've got a really great charcuterie board that I could bring in and get to the table. Uh, I got some nice, oh, you know, check out these plates that I have. No, God's got better charcuterie. <laughs> God, God's table is better than what you can bring to it. He's, he's setting the table. And the things that are on the table, the feast that's set before David, that's set before you, that's set before me, he sets this beautiful feast and he does it in the presence of our enemies. And that might sound so strange. Why would he put it there? When the enemies are close, they're near. And and listen, you're in here right now. There's plenty of us that have enemies. 
Uh, We don't have the same kind of enemies that David did. David had people that wanted to kill him. Um, Many of us are experiencing things in our life that become enemies or things that take up the whole, all of our focus. I mean, it's the idols of our life. It can be pain. It can be suffering. It can be the difficulty that you have with a child or with a spouse. It can be something with your job. I don't know what it is, but in the presence of all of that, God says, there's a table here. And on that table, there are some things that you do not want to miss. I'm going to set a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And the things that are there are more important and they're better and they're worth everything so that all of that out there means nothing. You can walk through the valley because you recognize that what's on the table is so much better than what's outside. And so two things that he brings up, two things that I I think they're symbols in the Bible that we sometimes miss. First is the anointing oil. He says, he anoints my head with oil and he says that his cup overflows. Those are the two things that are on the table. And I want to dig into those two things a little bit to give you some more assurance and to some, and to give you some more confidence in what's being, what's being laid out on this table. Where in the Bible do we hear about oil? Where do we hear about an anointing? In the Old Testament, you'll find that a special oil was made to consecrate and to ordain the priesthood. There was a special kind of oil. And because we know that King David wrote this psalm, we know that King David also experienced uh, an anointing with oil. In, in 1 Samuel, there is the prophet Samuel. If you've never read it before, I'll give you just a quick rundown. The prophet Samuel is told by God, I'm done with Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. He disobeyed the Lord. Um, and, and God said, he's not the king anymore. There's a new king. And what I need you to do, Samuel, as I need you to go, there's a man named Jesse. He's got some sons. And one of his sons is going to be the new king of Israel. And so Samuel goes and he tells him, take a horn of oil. So take some oil with you because you're going to anoint him king. And so Samuel goes to Jesse. Jesse puts all of his sons out in front of, uh, of Samuel, except for one. One of them is not there in the beginning. And Samuel does what we all do. He looks at the first son and he goes, this guy, he's handsome, he's strong. He's got the stature of a king. This is the guy right here. And the Lord famously says to him, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's not that guy. And all the brothers, right in a row, nope, 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 nope. He gets to the end of the brothers that are there and Samuel looks at Jesse and says, don't you have any more kids? <laughs> where's, the other, where's the other brother? There's gotta be another. And he says, well, there is one other. But you know what he's doing? He's a shepherd out in the fields with the sheep. And so David gets called back and he stands in front of Samuel and the Lord says, that's the man. Whoa, that was for effect. That's the man. He says, that's the guy. And so David is anointed with oil. And there's a couple things that happen when he, get, when he gets anointed. He gets anointed with oil as the king of Israel. And it says that the spirit of God was taken from Saul and it was given to David on that day. And the question that I sometimes ask is, when, when really did David become king? Because, you know, it took almost 20 years before he sat on the throne in Israel from that moment to the time he sat down on the throne. Almost 20 years But I will tell you, it was right then and there when that oil was anointed on his head that David became the king of Israel. Because the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. God never fails. And and I can't help but look at that and see the oil, the anointing oil, and think about the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has offered to his followers. God has made his home in those who follow Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit is like a kind of anointing. Paul will call it in Romans a seal on your heart. It's like a reminder over and over again. 
The seal is a reminder. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a person. The person of the Holy Spirit in your life is a reminder over and over again of the inheritance that you have. You're a citizen of heaven now. You're part of the kingdom right now. The kingdom is here and you're a part of this. And so the oil that we look at on that table is a reminder that God keeps his promises. And while we now walk through this valley and we walk through the difficult times and we can look around and see that this is kind of a mess, we can't see above the mountain that's in front of us, but the the shepherd is leading us on paths of righteousness and that promise of the spirit, the oil that gets anointed, we we can be sure that we, the place that we're going to end up is with God and his kingdom. There's an assurance of salvation in that oil. Isn't that amazing? And then we have this cup that overflows. And this cup, this is a tough one. I got to tell you, it is really hard because in the Old Testament, a cup that overflows, most of the time in the Old Testament, the overflowing cup is not a good thing. Okay? Uh, in the prophets, the prophets will often talk about the, the cup that's foaming over with God's wrath and God's judgment. A cup that's so full that it cannot, the wrath is just falling out of this thing. It's so full that they, it just can't even hold on to God's anger towards sin and towards the sinful and wicked nations that are around. That includes Israel. Even Israel had sinned against the Lord. And some of the imagery that the, the, the um, prophets will use is they'll say that they, the nations had to drink down the wrath of God, this cup, all the way down to the dregs, all the way down to the sediment. They had to drink it down. And so there's an intensity with this cup, but, but something happens here because the cup is overflowing on the table, but David doesn't say, oh, I'm, af- I'm afraid. I, what am I going to do about God's wrath overflowing on the table? No, he looks at the table, he sees the overflowing cup and he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So, so what is he seeing there? What's happening there in the cup? And I think it all comes back to what's inside the cup. It's wine, it's wine. And there's something about wine. Uh, there's, a, there's a work that needs to go into wine. You know, I can't wake up in the morning and be like, you know what we should do? Let's make some wine this morning and then it'll be ready by tonight. And we'll have a nice glass of wine together with dinner. It doesn't work like that. Because wine takes, it takes the cultivation of a field. It takes real work. And you have to plant those, those seeds and the grapes need to grow and they need to be harvested. And they need to be good fruit, right? They need to be flavorful and they get pressed and they, and they ferment and you put it in bottles. And, and, and what's better, a, a bottle of new wine or a bottle of wine that's aged for a long time? It's the wine that's aged that gets better and better over time. There's a maturing that happens with wine. Wine takes, it's a process. It's work. And, and I don't, I just want to be clear. I don't want this to be a... Um, Oh, what's the word? I don't want this to just be like a theological idea or like a theory for you this morning. The way that I see this and, and the thing that I want to sort of hit home with before we close out today is, is that there are plenty of people, when I talk to people outside of the church and, and some people within the church that are kind of new to their faith, one of the prevailing things that people will say about, uh, about spiritual things is they'll say, well, you know, I don't really read the Bible. I don't really go to church, but I wouldn't call myself an atheist, right? Uh, it's very rare that I meet someone that says, I don't believe in God at all. I don't think he's real. Most of the time I run into people who say, I, I, I believe that there's a God, but I, you know, I just try to be a good person, right? How many of you have heard that before? Yeah. It, it's, it's one of the most prevailing things because people really do want to work hard. 
It feels good for us to work. And, and, and listen, I, I'm right with you. When I have a hard day of work, yesterday we t- my brother and I tore out some of the, the walls in our house, my new house. It's not new, it's old, but I'm tearing the walls down. We're, we're doing some renovation. It feels good when that's all done and you're like, mm, by the strength of my arm, I knocked that wall down, right? Demolition feels good. There is a sense that we are to be proud of the work that we do, right? But there, when it comes to the spiritual life, it is a danger to be a person who works for their salvation. If, if you think that you can be a good enough person, you got a big problem because there will be some good things that you do. On one hand, they are right. There will be good things that you do and there will be sinful things that you do. And so if you think of it in terms of a vineyard, imagine you're making a wine. Now you're going to cultivate, cultivate the ground that you don't own. You're going to try to plant and, and raise up these vines and these fruits that, that are not really yours. And some of them will be good and some of them will be rotten. Because we've got some good things we do and we've got sinful things that we do and you're going to throw them all together in this vat, press it, ferment it, and put it in bottles and you're going to have a kind of, it's a kind of wine shelf, you know, a little wine cellar. And you pull it out like, oh, it's the 1995 vintage, one of my greatest moments here. And, and, and that stuff will mature over time. The grape of a vine, right? you take the grape and you eat it, it's good. But when, when that grape becomes wine and it, and it ages and it matures, it starts to bring out even more intense flavors. In the New Testament, you'll sometimes hear, uh, hear about a, a, a little leaven, Jesus will say, will leaven the whole loaf. A little bit of sin in your wine that you're making on your own by your work will corrupt the whole thing and it'll turn into sour, bitter destruction for you. And you'll stand in front of God one day and he'll be like, okay, well, tell me about the, 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 the life that you've led. And you'll say, I got, listen, I got my own wine cellar. Let me tell you about it. And you'll pull out that wine and he'll cork that thing open and he'll pour it. And what you'll find is bitter. What you'll find is that the cup is overflowing with God's wrath because there's not enough that you can do to turn your wine into the overflowing wine that David had on that table. So what exactly happened that David could sit there and see this cup overflowing and not be afraid of God's wrath? And it's because as Christians, we realize that one day because of God's grace, we found ourselves in a vineyard that we didn't cultivate. And there were plants growing there. There were vines there with fruit that was so beautiful. We didn't do anything to that fruit. And somebody had harvested it and had put it in a vat and had fermented it. And there was just the amount of wine that was stretched out in this vineyard that we did nothing with. All of it, the work of Jesus Christ. All of it, the grace of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working salvation for his people. The overflowing cup on the table is God's grace. Because in the Old Testament, it overflowed with wrath. But because of Jesus Christ, the overflow now is the beautiful grace and works of Jesus and the way that we can take in all of the goodness that he has done. It's an offering to us at a table where we have nothing to offer. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't it make you say, as David did, surely, based on what I can see and understand, surely the goodness and mercy of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I told you that I work with little ones a lot. I work with students a lot. And and sometimes when you read passages of scripture that you've read multiple times, if a little kid reads a a passage of scripture for the first time, they sometimes ask questions that I forgot that you could ask of the scripture. (laughs) And and there's a a part of scripture where it talks about Jesus on the cross and 
And there's a part of that that says that Jesus thirsted. He wanted something to drink. And I can remember talking to a little one saying, well, why didn't, wouldn't you give Jesus a drink? Oh man, and I, and I thought, man, if I, I don't know if you've ever done this, try to put yourself in that situation and go like, I would have gave him some, I'd have gave him a real drink as he hung there on that cross. I'd have done something different than Peter. I'd have done something different than all of these people. I'd have done what Jesus wanted because I know who he is. But I gotta tell you something. You, you did give him a drink and I did give him a drink. The sour and bitter wine that Jesus drank on that cross, it's not a coincidence that that was wine. It's, it's the, the bitter sting of death and sin that Jesus drank down for us. He sat in that garden and he asked God, can this cup pass me by? But not my will, but yours be done. He wasn't talking about the cup of grace. He was talking about the cup of wrath that was foaming over the sides and Jesus drank it all on the cross. The table is prepared. You don't have to add to it. Nothing that you can bring will will increase what God has done. And you don't have to worry because the goodness and the mercy of the Lord overflows out of that cup. And the grace of Jesus Christ can change your life today. Stop making your own wine. Stop doing the work to think that you can do enough to make God pleased. You can't. I put him up on that cross. And you put him up there. But he died and rose again. And the grace of God is, is with us. Just like the shepherd. He says, nope, come back here. Nope, this is, this is the way that we're going. He knows who you are. He knows how to get you to where he wants you to go. And he'll do it for his name's sake. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what valley you might find yourself in. But there is nothing more comforting than knowing that Jesus Christ will always keep his promises and that his cup of grace overflows to you and to me. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing one more time in response to the goodness and the mercy of God. And we will one day dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you.